I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Joshua Chong is a Toronto-based general assignment reporter and performing arts critic with the Toronto Star. I saw his article in the Star about theater audiences and how theaters need to change to bring in new audiences if they're going to grow, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I invited Joshua to join me on the podcast to talk about it. Here's our conversation. This this article uh, uh, of yours from the Toronto Star, Too White, Too Old, Too Well to Do, Why Toronto Theatre Companies Need to Appeal to a Broader Audience. Um, before we jump into like the, the what's in the article, I'm curious about what... What was the impetus for, for writing this article? How did the article itself come about? Well, I'd been wanting to do this article for months, and my editor was interested in it. From the start of the year, really, we were having discussions about when was the right time. Um, and I was really thinking about it from my personal experience, like how did I get into theater? And it was through initiatives, like the one that I was talking about, some of those that I was highlighting in my article, Um and, and I was kind of wondering in this kind of environment that we're in right now with the rising cost of living and all that, um, could someone like myself, who perhaps did not really have the means to to be exposed to theater, be able to get that exposure without these types of initiatives? Um, so we were trying to figure out the right time to do it. And we thought that towards the un, un, end of summer was a great time. And I was also covering, uh, you know, Canadian Stage, um, uh, Dream in High Park and... Um, wonderful 40 years of history there and it started out and it still is a free event pay what you can and it's a great way for for people to come come into the city and see theater and for a lot of people it's their only exposure to theater each year right you go down there and see how diverse it is the audiences that go and all that so i thought it would be a kind of a good tie into that but kind of look you know where we are now two years kind of after reopening some theaters are playing it safe Others are trying to, you know, cast a wide net for, for other audiences. So as the 2023-24 season opens up, we kind of wanted to do this this feature looking at um, what some companies are doing and, and where, where they think they need to go. 
It's a lot. I mean, it's the right time for asking these questions since most theaters are announcing their season or launching their seasons. So it's a really good time. You know, even Stratford is announcing its season for next year. Um, now, as far as you mentioned the, the initiatives that, that, that first got you into theater, um, was that like uh, uh, hip ticks and, and, and things like that? What, what were the initiatives that first got you into theater? Definitely hip ticks. Um, what else? Even before I became a professional theater critic, I've only been a professional theater critic for two years. So uh, the Soul Peppers, Free Under 25, I bring my friends. Whenever I want to bring my friends, I'll say, hey, do you want to go go see a Soul Pepper show tonight? Then we'll just see what's on and grab a last minute free Under 25 ticket. Um, what else? The COC as well. They they have wonderful under 30 deals, National Ballet. Um, I think for most people like myself, we go through kind of like the mainstream theaters, right? Because that's that's what you know. That's what you see the advertisements for and all that. Um, I know a lot of smaller independent companies have, have wonderful ticket initiatives as well. But I think I wanted to focus a lot in my article about some of the bigger companies and what they're doing because that, that's for a lot of theater goers, that's their first exposure to, to the performing arts. So for me as well, like like Mervish, they're, they're two for one deals. That's that's really when, when my mom and I would go each year, like the Boxing Day deal, for example, um, buy one, get one for $1, those kinds of stuff. And that's how I, I, I found found my way in because otherwise, most of the time, it's, it's, it's quite expensive, a lot of tickets. Yeah. Yeah. But I do I do think that a lot of people, their perception of, of theater, especially the cost, is Mervish because that's... You know, the big ticket shows, they have like the sides of streetcars and the posters all over the place that a lot of other theaters can't afford to to do. So that's what people think of first. And they think about those prices as soon as they like see that show. And then they look and they they see those prices. Um, And that gives people the because it's the theater that people see the most. I think it's a lot of times what people think that's the cost of theater and people don't go searching much further. It is, yeah. It, it is unfortunate. And sometimes I have to tell my friends who, who don't go to the theater as often, you can get tickets that are cheaper than a movie ticket sometimes, right? If you yeah. find the right deal and go to the right theater. There's so many theaters offering nowadays, you know, pay what you can to get some kind of those tiered levels. And I think those are fantastic initiatives. It's just hard for them to get the word out. Because as you said, when people think theater, they think Marvish, right? The big Broadway touring shows. And those yeah. are or really expensive unless you're getting like a standing room or a rush ticket. But even a rush ticket nowadays for, for like a Mervis show, it's like 59 bucks plus. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't Mervis. feel like rush because I know when yeah. I when I've been to, to, to a theater in New yeah. York, a rush ticket feels like a rush ticket. Yeah. You know, you, you do the lottery or whatever it is that you do and and you get the, the ticket pretty cheap, like comparatively. And then we come here and it's still like $50 for a ticket. Which isn't that much lower than like a seat at the back of the balcony in in, in some no, of the Mervis theaters. Yeah. So it it the price is definitely a, I think it not price the perception of price. That's exactly one it. of the yep. yeah the perception of price. Um. Also, you know, you mentioned the you know the the theaters have a difficult time getting the word out, um, and and that's. I think that's like number one challenge because Mervish, like you said, they can get TV commercials and radio commercials and the side of a streetcar and, and, and all of that stuff. But a theater like Passmarai, Tarragon, uh, uh, a factory, they can't do that. Um, and so people don't sometimes don't even know that those shows are available to them. Yeah. 
I think part of it too is is what I'm noticing some theaters are doing and some are doing it more successfully than others are, are bringing theaters out of these traditional spaces to audiences themselves. And that helps get the word out, I'm finding. Um, like on the on the bigger scale, I'm thinking like the COC, for example, they did they, they announced their first concert series um, in, in North York. They're, they're leaving the, the Four Seasons Center for a few concerts to go to the uh, George Weston Recital Hall in North York. So it's more accessible to people up there. They're heading to the Harborfront Center. National Ballet has been doing concerts at the National Ballet uh, at the Harborfront Center um, on the waterfront for, for years now, I think. Um, and I think that plays a part as well. If you, if you can't get those, you know, those advertisements by a side of a streetcar or a bus, I think another great way of doing it. And, and what we're seeing some companies do is, is bring theater out of traditional theater spaces to audiences, be that like a park, for example, Shakespeare mm-hmm. in the Park, um, these kinds of other initiatives, just to, to get that, that exposure uh, for people like even just walking by who may never have yeah. been to theater before, just to get a glimpse of it. There are some fascinating shows that happen in like the, the, the Dauntless City Theater with like a show that happens just in a park yep. that you people stumble on those shows. They're actually they're like I walk on their dog and they're like, I'm going to stick around and watch this show, which is a really interesting way to, to sort of like come across theater um, and sort of have it like in the space that, you know, you walk your dog in. And then now there's a show, which is a really fun way. And then people will often come back and say, I only saw part of the show. I'm going to see the whole thing. It's really interesting to, to to put theater in those places. It is fantastic just to take it out. And I think people are getting, I think part of it had to do with the, the pandemic. And, and like, I'll give credit to like Musical Stage Company, you know, their Porchside Concerts Initiative. You know, how many people I saw in like social media posting saying like, hey, what is this? And then other people kind of commented, this is like, you know, uh, Musical Stage Company. And, and it's a wonderful exposure for people who are just like walking by probably never intended to go to the theaters before experience theater and are getting exposed to this. And we're seeing a lot more now, I think a continuation of that kind of outdoor performances and all that outside of the theater um, and helps make it, I think, less stuffy and much more accessible for people who may be a bit daunted to go to the theater and maybe kind of worried, like, what is that environment like? Well, I think there's also, I mean, theater is one of the only art forms that, that I've, encountered where somebody will say something like, well, I saw a play once and I didn't like it. So I don't like the theater. And it's like you watched a bad movie and you still went to the movies. Why is theater this, this thing? This is sort of not, not in, in, in the topic, but it sort of is, is adjacent. Do you, have you encountered that? And do you, what do you say in that situation? I totally get that. I'll tell you a story back from, from high school. Um, my English class went to to Stratford and we saw a pretty awful Shakespeare production. You know how, you know, typical high school, you had to read a study of Shakespeare piece, went over there, watched it, and then had to analyze it. For a lot of my friends, it was their um, first exposure to theater or, or Shakespeare in a performance setting. And a lot of them now, even like a almost a decade later, still... <laughs> don't want to go back to the theater because of that experience. And I'm like, give it one more try, give it one more, more shot. Um, but yeah, I think there, there's this mentality that, that I've seen one, one show, it isn't good. I'm not going back again. Um, and I don't know why you're right. You know, you don't do that with the television, television or, or movie 
one movie, you see one movie when you're a when you're kid and you hate it, and then you yeah. go back to the movie theater. At least I've never experienced I, anyone. No, no, nobody, nobody says that. No. Nobody says, I saw one movie and I didn't like it. I don't like movies. Yeah. Nobody says that. But I do think, I mean, if I, you're sort of like hit on something where the way that we teach Shakespeare is not conducive to people actually liking Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is usually the first thing that people go to see in in the theater, especially when it's not kids theater. It's like, you know, adult theater. And you have kids going to see to Stratford after spending weeks studying Shakespeare as though it is literature and not having a great experience of it. And then we take them to the theater and say, watch this show. And, you know, I I think Shakespeare is important, but to a point up to a point, and I don't think it should be taught. My opinion is that I don't think it should be taught in all four years of high school. Like for me and my experience, and I think for most students in Ontario, you learn a Shakespeare one Shakespeare each year, if not more. Like I remember for, for grade 11, we did two, I think. Um, and I, I don't think that so. there's so much more to, to theater than Shakespeare. Of course, it is quite foundational and it's important to, to know some Shakespeare. Um, but but I think it's important to get that exposure to other works of theater as well, um, to offer kind of a way in for audiences for, and for, for students who, who may just may not get Shakespeare. Um, But I know that my, like my high school, for example, I'm on the alumni board. So I'm, I kind of know what's going on. And and I think this past year they're getting rid of Shakespeare in grade 11. And I think a lot of schools are doing that as well. And and doing it as a indigenous uh, literature course. So they're going to be studying like indigenous works and indigenous plays and all that. I think that's, that's great. I think like Shakespeare, maybe one or two years in high school and, and the other two years, do some other stuff. I think. I'm still not even sold that we need to teach Shakespeare in, in 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 schools. Just based on the way that we teach it, we are still stuck in our Victorian. Yeah. Like, we treat this like literature. These plays were not meant to be read; they were meant to be seen. Yeah. Um, and by doing it the way that we do it, we and this is since this is the first experience that a lot of people have with theater. We tell them right out of high school, you don't like this theater thing, which is a hard thing to to fight against because high school is so foundational yeah. in terms of the things that you end up liking for almost the rest of your life. Yeah. I bet you if we did the same things with, with film, if we replaced yeah. Shakespeare with film studies every year for four years, and we had to look at like some classical films and study them like the texts, I think we'd have a lot of lot fewer film lovers than we do today <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah definitely that that that's certainly a problem um now in terms of in terms of of, of the article itself um are there things that 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 surprised you about 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 theaters and their audience that you didn't expect when you went into when you started writing it you know when I was going in to write it I was focusing quite a lot on the price aspect, like price accessibility. But as I was speaking with, with theaters and with experts, um, Signey Sign- Lynch, who's an assistant professor um, of drama theater and performance studies at U of T, she brought up a really important point that it's it, it goes beyond just price accessibility. That is one factor, but it's also putting on the programming um, that will attract diverse audiences as well. Um, we go to the theater, yes, sometimes to escape and, and see and discover new experiences, but I think it's important as well, and, and she highlight, highlighted this, to see stories that reflect ourselves in some way. Um, and I think we are seeing 
theaters now and artistic directors start to program their seasons in a bit more conscious way. Um, one of the interesting points that was brought up in my articles by one of the experts, I'm not sure who was either Sydney or, or Kelsey, who's a Kelsey Jacobson assistant prof professor at Queen's University, is that the subscription model is dying. Um, and I was speaking with a few artistic directors and they said there are very few theaters in the world or in North America that are saying that their subscription audiences are growing. Um, and, and for some, that is troubling for them because that is their base and that's what they rely on, you know, to get that cash injection and that security. But some of them are taking that as an opportunity, you know, with the, the subscription audiences are, are dwindling, but people are selecting single tickets a bit more and they can cast a wider net so they don't have to program their seasons just for one type of audience anymore. So they can, but now they can pick and choose more diverse works that, that can appeal to a broader range of audiences and bring more people in. So I think that's really interesting and we're going to see more of that in the next decade. Um, really artistic directors kind of experimenting with their seasons and being a bit more bold and daring with them as they, as they move away from the subscription model. What, what's interesting about that is, I, you know, subscriptions are like the subscription audience is a bit of a crutch um, that a lot of theaters fell into because it was great for a while. Um, and now as as they find that that fewer younger people are buying subscriptions, that they're sort of like almost tied to this. Like this is our audience. This is our subscription model. We cannot offend them. Um, I'll point out one of the comments on, on your article, which I mentioned in my blog post about somebody who was like, well, they basically said, essentially, if they're not willing to cater to me, I will take my money elsewhere, which is like, I think that is the danger that theaters face is like, we, we don't want to alienate this audience who already gives us money. And yet we are, we need to bring in this other audience who hasn't yet given us money. What do we do? And sometimes they continue to cater to the audience that is giving them money. It is such a issue right now, especially after the pandemic, because, you know, yes, there is audience attrition. Yes, subscription bases are dwindling, but theaters are still at a, such a precarious point right now at a point of recovery that a lot of them are kind of, you know, debating. And I've, I've heard this from multiple artistic directors. Do we play it safe and cater to that audience at that, to that subscription audience who may be dwindling, but they know we'll come back to put in these like favorites for them. Um, or do we take that risk? And it's a really big risk right now to program these daring works um, that, that may be a hit and may attract new audiences or may be a complete dud and, and, and may, may, may cost us a lot of money and potentially like the, the future of, of the financial sustainability of the company. So I think those are some tough conversations happening right now. Yeah. It's got to be terrifying because look, you look at uh, the, a bunch of the theaters in the States that have either laid off huge portions of their, of their staff or shut entirely. Um, interestingly, these are a lot of the not-for-profit theaters that are facing that. Whereas a lot of the for-profit theaters are continuing to to to, to sell tickets, um, which is an interesting dichotomy that these 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 theaters where you know, investors put a ton of money in and all this sort of stuff, they workshop and all this, and then the show goes up and it runs for years. Whereas you find these more repertory uh, theaters that are taking t some chances, but also might not be taking huge chances, and they're the ones that are facing the the shortfall. 
Exactly. And and I think one thing that I didn't really get into in my article that I wish I did was the implications of that, right, of these companies perhaps not doing well and possibly failing. You look at the U.S., the public theater, well, the other one, the Mark Taper Forum in, in L.A. These are the theaters that produce the original works, the most daring works, the, the works that perhaps may not be produced elsewhere. They're willing to invest in that. So if these theaters collapse or are not even at their fullest potential, how does that impact the creation of art? And I think that's what's most concerning to me and a lot of really concerning to, to theater artists as well. And, and oftentimes these things won't fly under the radar of the general theater audience because when they think theater, as we said, they think of like the for-profit theater, the big um, theater companies that are producing the, the commercial hit shows. But I think this will affect things down the line. And, and with the length of time that it takes to create theater, you may not see the impacts of this till five, 10 years down the road, um, which is sad. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's something that, that is going to have an impact that we're not going to see for quite some time. Um, just because um, it's important that people, you know, as far as bringing in audiences, people need to make theater a habit, yeah. right? Um, and if your theater habit is, I'm going to go see Book of Mormon at a Mervis Theater when it comes in, uh, or I'm going to see the Panto if there is a Panto anymore, because, you know, they're, they're not doing that anymore in, 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 in Toronto. Um, that's what I do with the kids. We go to see a kids show at, at Christmas and we go to see uh, the Book of Mormon or equivalent show when it comes to, to, to Toronto. That's not a theater habit. That's a, that's sort of like a, these are the, I do this for the kids and I do this for me every four years or so when the show comes or, or something. We need to bring people into the theater. People need a reason to get off the couch when they have the, essentially the world of, of, of video to, to come to the theater. And that's another challenge that theaters face. Well, that's exactly it. We've lost the habit, right? Especially over the pandemic. And while that habit is gone, we have so many more offerings now with streaming and all that. You think back like before the rise of streaming or even like real home entertainment, you had to like go out to see a movie, right? You had to go out to see theater. So that was always that habit of kind of, you know, making an event out of it going out to, to consume those forms of media. And you don't have that anymore, right? You can just open up your laptop, connect to your television and just stream a, a, a show. So I, I think that's the, the other uphill challenge that theaters are facing while reopening is kind of making that habit again of going to the theater. Um, and I'm not sure what the answer is because... Yeah. Yeah. It's a question. I mean, I also think, you know, I think that theater can be an experience and um, people will pay for experiences. You know, you look at, you know, the Van Gogh experience, which was like giant projections. People go and pay $50 each for a, a projection uh, for 20 minutes um, because that that event has very successfully drawn people in for the experience um and i think that we are out of habit of talking to people who don't go to the theater regularly to tell them what they're going to get from the experience of being at the theater yeah i did not get that 
to be honest, those, um, you know, those production style things, but I guess to each their own. But I agree, you need to make an experience out of it. And I think part of it is opening up theaters, like the building itself, so that it's more than just a space for performing arts. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that a lot. You see like, like what Buddies is doing, right? Um, their space, they've been doing it for ages, the cabaret, the bar and all that. It's more than just a performing arts space. It's a community hub. COC has been doing it for Season Center um, with their free events. Um, what else? Oh, I was talking to Anthony Cimolino, uh Stratford Howe, and he was mentioning how the Tom Patterson Theater has really become a hub in the past two years since it's opened. And I think that is the way forward because you have these, you know, structures just standing in the middle of the city. You can put on, what, eight shows a week? That's how many hours in a week, maybe like, I don't know, 16 hours a week that it's it's filled. There's so much potential in those buildings that are unused. And I think a way to attract people in is, is to create experiences and different ways for them to use that space. I think a lot of people like my generation and younger people, they want to make an experience out of it. They, they don't want to just go to the theater, just see a show and leave. Maybe go, go to the theater, do some stuff afterwards, have a talk back have some community activities, go for dinner beforehand, mingle, mix and mingle, that type of things. And I think that will get more people in rather than just like come in for curtain and then see the show, bows, yeah. everyone leave and go home. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I mean, one of my favorite theaters that I've ever been in is the Staircase in, in Hamilton, mm-hmm. which has a cafe slash restaurant in the lobby. That's the lobby. It's this cafe slash restaurant. And you can go in at any time of day have a coffee, have a pastry, have a sandwich, um, which sort of like opens that up to be like, this is a place to be. Um, and then sometimes people go see a show or some people didn't even know it was a theater until somebody, they saw a bunch of people going in and they thought, oh, maybe I'll check that out because I'm comfortable in this space, no. which is, I think, as far as like bringing people into the theater, um, we have to give up the idea of, of of some of our theater traditions we need people to feel comfortable in the space yeah and i think the most successful companies are the ones that don't treat those periphery and those um ancillary activities as a means to an end to bring people in just create those initiatives out there for the community it doesn't matter if those people that are using those initiatives and using those spaces come to the theater in the end um, but just having it as kind of like a community hub for the community, I think that's what makes, um, that's what's most successful for companies. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that there's, you know, if you look at diversity in the theater, when when people go to the theater, if they decide they're going to go see a show and they see, for example, if they're a person of color and they go to the, they go to the theater and it's just a sea of white people. Um, or then there's all these, it seems like there's all these rules and I don't understand what's going on. Like what, what, what's this? And now, now we're applauding at this point. Oh, there's a break. Like what's happening. I think that, that sometimes those spaces can seem unfriendly to people who don't go to the theater regularly. Um, and if we're going to bring people into those spaces, we have to make them accessible, make them more friendly to everybody. And maybe that is bringing people in when it's not a show. Yeah, I, I think so too. And, and and it goes, something else I didn't mention in my pieces, like relaxed performances. 
right? Um, those types of initiatives that, that open it up to more people who may not feel comfortable attending a regular performance. And I think we've we've made we've progressed leaps and bounds um, in terms of accessibility in the theater in those respects and having those options. But I think there's still still a ways to go. I was speaking with with a friend um, from Singapore. I'm originally from from Singapore, um, and she and her family came over to, to visit. And she works in accessibility in theater in in Singapore, and. Um, the idea for a relaxed performance is totally foreign to her and, and in, in, in Singapore and in many other parts of the world. Um, and I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here, but, but yeah, I think we've progressed a lot in terms of, of that respect, but um, there's still more to go. Like the, the frequency of those relaxed performances. If you look at like Mervish, for example, those accessible performances, they don't really come very often. It's like maybe once once in a run, if you're lucky, mm-hmm. um, it's yeah. a lot more in, in the small, the smaller theater companies. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's an important aspect as well in order to bring people in and make them feel comfortable. Yeah. I think it's hard for shows. A lot of the shows that the Mervis is bring in, they'll decide if they're going to do something. They're going to, the production will decide. Um, they can be asked if they want to do something, but then you, you, the stage manager has to decide, Okay, now we have to do everything different, and maybe it's too much for them to 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 put in the effort to do because they've been running the show this way for so long. It is a missed opportunity for those shows because I think, you know, bringing people into the audience is such it, bringing people into the theater is so important, and any way that we get them in is a way to get them in. Yeah, I agree. And go, going back to to programming for a bit, I think that you know. It's really interesting right now to see what companies are doing and which companies are, are programming their works and how they program a season in terms of the accessibility and all that. Um, what am I trying to say? Um, but yeah, the, the, whether they're programming for a subscription audience or not. Um, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. That's okay. That's yeah. okay. I think that there's something to be said for for, you know, there's... People go to see movies. You know, there's two kinds of, of yeah. say, movie audiences. There's people who go to see film, and there are people who go to see a movie, right? So TIFF is on, so people who go to see film, they're going to see those. Um, as we record this, TIFF is on. Um, and other people, they want to go see, like, the latest, like, fun movie, the latest, whether it's a horror movie, whether it's a superhero movie, whether it's uh, whatever it might be. Um, theater doesn't really give us that often. Theater gives us important stuff. People gives a, theater often gives us the equivalent of film um, on stage as opposed to like uh, uh, just a fun movie. And I think that's something that I think, like I think I've been, you know, talking about with some people about, you know, where is the popcorn theater? Where's like the just the fun theater that people go to see? And it's and sometimes that's the Mervishes and that's like the, that that for profit theater. But sometimes it's in order to see that just fun theater, we have to go to really indie theaters like the Red Sandcastle and Eldritch Theater and some of the stuff that's happening at the Assembly Theater in order to see like like pure just like this is just this is fun. There might be a message, but we this is this is fun theater and and programming, I think, is like, yes, we, we want to program for diversity, but we also want to program to like bring people in just for the fun of it. And then maybe they'll take the chance on the film theater. Yeah. Cater different audiences. And that's what concerns me going back to like Ross Petty, right? Panto um, may not have that 
anymore, that option come, yeah. come the holidays, right? For some people, that's their way into theater. It's not you yeah. know, their, their, the, the film art house style theater. That's not their way in. Um, so I think we do need those kind of options and then the fun theater, the, the highbrow theater, the lowbrow theater, um, all those kinds of options for people. Um, and I'm not really sure that's the case here in Toronto. Um, as as a critic, you know, most critics, you know, frown on, on the jukebox musical and those things. I don't really mind them. Like, sure, they may not be artistically the, the most sophisticated thing, but if it gets people into the theater and it's a way in for them, right, if they, they can connect to it because of the, the music, it's something they've list, listened to on the radio before, all mm. the better, right? Um, and I think that's that's missing. On the other hand, though, I think we could, it, it's possible that, that you could swing all the other way and you can have like, you know, all this like fun theater where it's hyper commercialized and, and you're seeing that in, in some theater centers. And I, I think we're quite fortunate here in Toronto that we aren't at that point yet and hopefully never where, where everything is kind of based on existing IPs and all that, just like kind of the fun stuff. Um, you know, I'm planning to a, a trip to London in October in a couple of months time. And um, I was looking mainly at West End stuff, what to see before I was looking at some of like the smaller not-for-profit ind independent theater companies and almost everything on the West End. If it's not one of those long running shows, it is like a, a jukebox musical, a movie based on a, a musical based on a movie, a musical based on a book or something like that. And it's so hard to get this original work out yeah. there nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Because I think I think when you're looking at things from a purely for-profit point of view, you're just like, whatever gets bums in seats. People like Back to the Future. They like Mean Girls. They like, they like Harry Potter. They like whatever it is. We're just going to put that out there and that'll get the bums in the seats. I think that one of the things that we have the advantage of in, in, in the way that we create theater in, in Toronto and the way that we produce theater is we do have uh, these, these companies like Theater Pass Marai, uh, 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 Tarragon Factory, who, who do sort of like, I guess, you know, a lot of times more of the, the quote-unquote film type theater. But they could, in their, prog in their programming, throw in a popcorn show, you know, without disrupting their season. Yeah so much yeah. completely because they have they create a season that runs over a finite period of time and they are not beholden to investors or things like that in order to to, to put those shows on it's a unique opportunity i think and we have strong pipelines for creation as well we have so many companies here that are dedicated to present and help develop new work and oftentimes new work that is not that is truly original i'm not based on something that is safe, right? And we'll get guaranteed bums and seats. And I think that that we're really fortunate here. And sometimes we, we need to mention that a bit more and, and give yeah. kudos to, to those companies that, that do that because it is scary. And oftentimes you don't know, like, you know, oftentimes most shows don't succeed, right? And it often takes multiple mm -hmm. runs and, and tweaks and workshops to, to, to get a, show to a point um where where it is presentable on on the main stage um, yeah and yeah i think we're pretty fortunate in that regard and, and that helps yeah. bring audiences in as well um having investing in these these original works yes those those original ips will get a certain demographic of audiences in that are familiar but but 
um, producing original works as well and having that that kind of interest and following it along, I think appeals to a different sort of audience. Yeah, absolutely. One of the one of the tragedies I think of the way that we do our our theater in Canada is everybody because of the nature of our theaters, we're always chasing premieres. So we have mm-hmm. some sometimes we're doing some rolling premieres, which means that they'll premiere in different cities. But a lot of theaters are chasing the premiere. We want to be the first to do this show, which means that a show could be great in a, in a city and nobody else will see it because it's not a premiere. And I think that's one of the, the downsides to chasing the premiere of a, of a show, because the, this show, you know, you might want to do you. We should do it in Calgary. We should do it in Edmonton. But because it's not a premiere, those people will never see it. That that's one of my irks or, or pet peeves about about um, companies. So so yes, I praise them for for del- developing new works and original works. But then usually it gets like the big world premiere. There's a lot of fanfare, and sometimes these works are fantastic, right? And often, like in my reviews, and I say, oh, I wish that it has more life afterwards somewhere else. And often that just goes unheard, and, and then you never hear of it again, which is such a pity because often these works are so wonderful and should be seen by others. And even the yeah. works that perhaps aren't successful, they just need a tweak or two, right? You can learn so much from just presenting in front of audience, audience and just pick it up and take it somewhere else and and, and, and do the work on it and, and you know, um, present it again in a new production. And I think that's one of the problems we have in, in Canada is is the, the pipeline from not-for-profit to, to, to commercial and making that jump. Um, and, you know, there are great programs here, especially like for musicals, the, the Canadian uh, Musical Theatre Project um, that Michael Rubinoff did, you know, the success of Come From Away, then the few shows after, like Life After and all that, they were able to make that jump. But I think it, it's incredibly rare for, for plays in Canada to be able to, to make that leap unless, you know, you have like a, co-production and co-presenters um, or Mervish is picks it up and puts it in their off Mervish season. It's really yeah. rare for. Really shows. rare. Yeah. Um, and it's also the problem we, other than Mervish, we don't have a lot of options for commercial theater. No. It's hard. It's There's not many places to go to to make the jump from yeah. not-for-profit to, to commercial. One of the shows, I remember a few years ago, Cat Sandler had a show in Edmonton I don't I can't the name of the show escapes me, but it was meant to be done simultaneously in one theater and another. And so characters would go from one theater to the other and they would cross over. And if you wanted the whole thing, you would go back twice. But the shows ran simultaneously. And so somebody would walk off stage from this theater, run up the stairs, and then walk on in that other theater. And I have wanted to see that show. Interesting. Ever yeah. since I heard about it. But of course it because of that pipeline of the way that we create shows, it happened in Edmonton and it's not a premiere. So it's unlikely to be seen somewhere else. That sounds so cool though. That, that almost reminds me like, it's like the winter at Elgin, the winter garden and Elgin theater here in, in Toronto, like in the old days when they used to, but yeah. it's like a vaudeville house, the actors would go up and down in different shows. But I think that, that that's going back to the issue about the lack of companies picking up works afterwards. I think really it's so rare for it to happen. It only happens if you get like commercial producers attached from the beginning or like your big name. Like I think the last play that, that had a rolling world premiere that I'm, I, I can remember is Bad Parent in Choi um, 
follow-up play to, to Kim's Convenience. I think that happened like a year and a half ago. It was like Soul Pepper. Then it went to Fairy Theater Exchange out west. And, and I think the Vancouver, one of the theaters there. Um, but it's so rare, unless you're, you're a name or, or you have commercial producers from the beginning, which is such a pity, I think, um, because uh, it's an important part of, of theater to have that, that runway for development. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Joshua, this is this is a rare opportunity for me because I've only in the past I've spoken to two other uh, uh, theater reviewers. I talked to uh, to Glenn Sumi and I talked to Janine Marley from a view from a view from the box. Um, and uh, I find I think we rarely get to talk to people who write about theater, both the, in terms of the, the the theater industry and also reviewing theater. Um, you mentioned about how you, your first entry into theater was, um, you know, the, the the hip ticks and things like that, and and also those those like cheap cheap seat, cheap seats to the yeah. to the Mervis shows. What made you want to write about theater? How did that start for you? Um, goes back to high school. Really, I was really fortunate to go to a high school that had a student newspaper, a student produced newspaper. Um, we had a really strong art section. I always loved. Theater, even before high school, I did community theater, acting, uh, some directing, some stage management, and all that. Um, and I was really passionate about journalism as well. Um, my day job, actually, nowadays is as a general assignment reporter at the Toronto Star, and I do theater criticism on the side. Um, and I loved how to how I could marry both my passion for for writing and theater, getting to analyze complex works and translate it for an audience from a stage to a page. Um, it's, it's, it's a difficult process for me and I'm still learning, but um, I get a lot of joy from, you know, writing about theater and trying to analyze it for an audience. Um, so that's how I got into it. And in high school, I, I was quite lucky that um, someone from Mervish saw my high school paper and I reviewed a show and then they offered season uh critics tickets uh, for my student newspaper and I was like the critic for one year then after that I I did the Toronto Fringe Teenger um, reviewers program I think it's called the new young reviewers program now um, mm -hmm. but the year that I did it um, Karen Fricker who's now my colleague at the star was my mentor there so that's how I, I formally got into theater criticism then she encouraged me to do the emerging arts critics program that was run out, run out of the National Ballet, along with Opera Canada, Soul Pepper, and TSO, Toronto Symphony Orchestra. Unfortunately, it's not around anymore. Hopefully, it can be revived. I'm hoping to get some people to revive it because it was a fantastic program that exposed me to dance criticism, opera criticism, classical music criticism, and theater criticism. So it was really a holistic approach to criticism that I really appreciated. Um, and then after that, I, I started work at the Star first as a as a reporter first because I did journalism throughout university, and then I um, offered to do some performing arts reviews, and then I guess the rest of rest is history. Just to get on the side now. I mean, you have your your byline is quite extensive. Looking at the Toronto Star's page, you're covering a lot, and it's it's interesting to see you go from talking about the arts to talking about politics to talk about to all of the things that, that you do cover. Um, do you feel like sometimes the, the arts coverage is something you sort of sneak in? Um, or is it something that, that you're able to focus on as much as you might want? I sneak it in because it's it's not my day job. It's not what I get paid to do. Like my, my nine to five job is as a general assignment 
reporter and then I'm kind of like the, the secondary theater critic um, and I pitch stuff on the side to the arts team. Um, in a way, I enjoy that in, in this point in my career, getting to do um, theater and then also explore, you know, my, my other passions like business reporting, political reporting and all that. And I think it complements each other while getting to, you know, cover current events and then sometimes tying it in to, to the, the shows that I'm analyzing, the plays that I'm reviewing and all that um, gives a, a different perspective, perhaps, compared to if I'm a full-time theater critic. Um, I would love to focus on theater more in the performing arts. There's a lot of stories that I want to do, uh, larger features, investigations, and all that, that that I can't do right now because um, I just don't have the time to dedicate. Um, but that's probably further further down the line. Yeah. When you say investigations, are there are there topics that, that you think that we are not diving into in theater? Because I will say, um, I was shocked that I didn't see people talking about this article that you wrote. I, so, I did yeah. see a lot of discourse about it. And I feel like it needs the discourse. The conversation needs to happen. Um, so are there other things that, that oh, sort of like in that vein that you feel like we should be talking about in the theater and we just aren't? Oh, what are some of the big topics in the theater? I think accessibility is a big one. So like this piece, I'm really also interested in um, the, the, the intersection of business and the performing arts, especially now. Um, funding models are changing. Um, government subsidies are drying up after the pandemic and all that. How we fund theater in general is undergoing a huge major shift right now. Um, as I said, with the the um, demise of, of the subscription model. Um, and I think that needs to be investigated more um, to shine a light on because it impacts uh, not just theater companies, but the process of making art as well and, and how we are funding the creation of art. Um, so I think that's a big topic there. Um, I'm really interested in like big trends in theater, right? Um, Something I want to focus on, maybe this is years down the line, but looking at, you know, musical theater, I, I'm really passionate about Canadian musical theater, not just come from away, but pre-come from away as well, um, and how that ecosystem has changed. I think we're really in a golden age of Canadian musical theater right now and kind of looking at that arc of how we got here, where we're potentially going and and the voice, uh, our distinct voice um, um, for the genre of Canadian musical theater, if you can call it that. Yeah. I think that's fascinating because I remember when I was in theater school back in the ancient days, in the early 90s, um, we were, at, you know, we're seeing some stuff. And then all of a sudden we start hearing about this new Canadian musical. And we're excited because we're like, a new Canadian musical. We haven't heard of a Canadian musical before. And it turned out that it was a, it was a musical called Napoleon. And we were just like, why is this a Canadian musical? Why is this the show that we've decided is we're going to call the new Canadian musical when it's about Napoleon of all things? It's just like one of those, like, how do you, how do you make that decision? Like you're just going to do a show about somebody that anybody could do a show about. Like Napoleon could be done by anybody. Why did we do this here? Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy, right? How I was labeled the, the big thing in Canadian theater, and then now yeah. probably audiences yeah. have never heard of it. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Uh, Joshua, I have I have a bit of a pointed question. That yeah. I don't know if you can answer the question, um, but a lot of times, especially this happens a lot in the major publications, in the Toronto Star, in the Globe and Mail, and things like that. Um, we talk about theaters of a certain size. We're talking. We see articles about 
crows. We t- see articles about uh, Passmerai, Tarragon, Factory. Um, but we there's a, so other indie theaters that sort of get looked over who are doing exciting work. Is there, and the question is, is there is it space in the pages or is there, uh, uh, do, does the paper specifically have to focus on theaters of a specific size in order to justify the print? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think our audiences, because they're, 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 we don't have as much resources as we once did. Um, we don't have as many theater reporters or critics as, as we once did. Um, like currently at the star right now, there, there is me, there is Karen Fricker, um, and then Glenn Sumi helps out a bit, but none of us are full time at the star. Um, and I think we we would love to focus more on those indie theaters that, that fly under the radar. But if we do cover them um, instead of like the big show that's going on, I think our readers will ask, why aren't you covering this big obvious thing that is here? Hmm. Which is unfortunate. I think part of it has to do is ideally if we had a media ecosystem where we had the, the mainstream players like the Star and the Globe, but also, you know, the strong indie papers like what once was the, the now magazines and mm-hmm, all that mm-hmm. we could have that comprehensive coverage um but right now unfortunately i, I don't think there's that the, there's that kind of that that middle player anymore in toronto media yeah. um that can go out and cover those indie shows the, those comedy comedy bars um those one night concerts one night performances um and it's hard for for the mainstream players i think to to just cover cover that that breath yeah sure because we're at, we're asking a lot of the big newspapers right yeah um i i think one of the you know we have talked with a few people about the fact that i remember not this this fringe festival but the fringe festival last year um the question that everybody had because mooning on theater was no longer publishing and everybody was wondering you know now is hardly publishing you know it's just glenn um how are we going to get media reviews? And that was the question that year because the ecosystem of theater criticism seemed to be kind of dead. This year we see the Toronto star was covering some friend shows. Glenn was covering friend shows. We had a bunch of indie, 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 indie reviewers, which was great. Um, one of the tragedies that I think is there's a, you know, online publications um, like for example, blog to that have the eyes. They just have no interest in covering the arts. Unless it's a sponsored post. Every so often I'd be like, oh, they covered the arts. And then I look and it was a sponsored, sponsored post. post. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, see, that's, that's, is that how, is that the only way we can get coverage in this online publication is to sponsor a post? It's, it's kind of sad that, that it's there and they don't have to worry about pages. They, you can have infinite online pages and they just won't cover it. It's yeah. sad, I think. Yeah. Going back to the fringe, that was a big conversation we had. Mm-hmm. last year because we really ramped up the toronto star ramped up its its fringe coverage last year and, and because we, we noticed that you know mooney wasn't covering now wasn't covering um but there were some difficult conversations happening behind the scenes like how much should a mainstream publication be covering and is it fair like what kind of reviews should we be publishing should we only be publishing the, the critics picks is it fair to publish a, a negative review that for a show that's still under development and it's posted everywhere for this huge audience um so so those were the difficult conversations that we're having and in the end for last year what we decided was we were only going to do like the critics picks online so we saw like between karen ali and i like 60 70 shows that would only review like the best ones um 
And then this year, um, we kind of pivoted a bit and, and we, um, we reviewed everything, but on almost like a, a tweet style, like really short. So we're still playing around with it and trying to figure yeah. out like what our role is. And I think a lot of publications are doing the same as well as theater coverage in the city is changing. Like what is, is our role as a, as a mainstream player here? Um, yeah. should we be covering this? Is this fair to the artists? Um, if, if we're publishing reviews for this small show that's in development on this huge, huge platform. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is a, it is a question. I mean, you look at um, uh, the Edmonton fringe and all of the newspapers cover Edmonton fringe because it's massive. It's huge. so important to that city. Um, same in Winnipeg. Um, and then you go to other cities, Montreal, there's a few small papers that, that they review. It is hard to find that balance because I definitely see the, the, the concern, like here's this artist who's starting out, let's say, and they get a bad review. Have we destroyed their confidence because we published a review of something that wasn't quite just quite ready yet? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think I'm happy that I saw more reviews this year. I don't need them to be long. Just like I think audiences, honestly, I've been on the Fringe tour. You just want a pull quote. You just yeah. want something. Yeah. And if there's stars, that's good too. But like you just want a pull quote. Um, and just to get it is 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 certainly. Uh, uh, helpful. So it's good. I, I was happy to see the increased but smaller length uh, reviews this year. Okay, good to know. Yeah, that's great feedback. We're trying to get feedback from from theater makers and artists about that because we're still figuring stuff out. Then we have like next stage coming up next month yeah. and all that. Yeah. Um, but but I think as well, theaters are, are putting too, I feel personally, even as someone who works in mainstream theater, are putting too much focus on you know what the big critics and the big publications say as if it's the end-all be-all it, it never was and especially now it never is um i think there needs to be more focus on like some what of what some of the independent players are doing sort of the bloggers and all that um there's some great other online publications out there doing stuff and um focus on the work that they're doing and play it up as well, because the, the mainstream publications will never be able to cover everything in the city because there's so much going on. Um, and it's unfortunate, but I know that, that a lot of um, smaller publications, bloggers, online media are filling, trying to fill, fill those gaps. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it, it's hard because, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, honestly, I, I've, I've taken a pull quote from like, no, the blog nobody's heard of just because you need something on the poster but like it's hard because it's so you it's so hard to get an audience to see a show you need something and sometimes you could put like the name of like the star in there then it's like it's a bonus right because yeah. somebody somebody might come to see it because they recognize the newspaper it's such a hard thing because when you're doing indie theater it can be hard to get the audience out but it's 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 the dichotomy I think between the media and the 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 artist who's they, we have two two different goals exactly right? I, yeah. yeah I get it I see where artists are coming from like they they need to sell tickets they need to get those bums and seasons sometimes you know the Globe and Mail the Toronto Star um, has that weight to it when they get to pull the quote but then for me and I think for for most theater critics our goal is never to to our, our goal is never to help sell tickets even if we're raving about a show it is to start. In, in, in conversation with an audience and kind of start that dialogue um, about the piece that, that we're seeing. Um, 
but and and sometimes it's hard to to reconcile both of those. But I see where where the artists are coming from when they just need that that pull quote, right? I yeah. I do think that's the conversation that sometimes needs to happen because I think that artists often don't understand the critics and what their goal is. No. They're just thinking about how can I how can I use this to sell tickets, and we don't have that conversation back and forth between the artist and the the reviewer to say no i'm not trying to sell tickets for you i'm just trying to talk about a show and talk about it have a conversation that gets started and the artist is 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 pulled in a different way it's one of those unfortunate things and i think that if we can get artists and reviewers together to talk more often which i think doesn't happen very often um it's something that, that, that could help us to understand each other's differing points of view I totally agree. And I'm all for kind of breaking down that that firewall between artists and critics that, that used to be there. That whole, I think that was, that, that did quite a lot of harm, right? That firewall that, that you know, as a critic, you're not allowed to interact with artists at all and then vice versa. But I think it's important to have that conversation, that dialogue, um, because we're still all in the same ecosystem after all. Of course, there, there are boundaries, like you shouldn't be reviewing your family members, show yes, and all yes. that but but <laughs> i think it's 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 good in a way that those barriers are starting to, to slowly break down and we're having a bit more of those conversations about what the purpose of of theater criticism is how it fits in the landscape and especially nowadays when um media and, and theater is changing so rapidly absolutely absolutely well joshua thank you so much for joining me for this conversation thank you for the article and thank you for for a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for having me. And likewise, this was a fantastic conversation. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.